Good morning. As you can tell, I love meet and greet time, so I'm never going to cut that one short when it's my time. As you can see, I do not have as many notes as Pastor Bill, so we're going to be out of here really quickly. <laughs> and that is a joke because I am, as some may say, long-winded as well. I get it from my daddy. Oh, man. Well, good morning. Oh, yes, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, the youth, the kids uh, go out. I think uh, Mr. Ed is taking you out um, this morning. So if you want to take your kids out, they're free to stay here if you want as well. But, yeah, don't make them suffer through this. And, yeah, just, just thankful for everybody. Precious Kiara doing the reading. That's that's always amazing seeing the youth uh, talk about the Word of God, training them up in the way that they should go. Uh, so that's an amazing blessing. Well, yeah, so be sure after, do not leave, head to the back. We'll be having the agape feast. There's some pies and a salad. So there's also healthy options, too. So don't be scared by the sweets. You'll have, you'll have your fill back there. All right, let's get started. I'm going to pray for this service and then... We'll jump right into it. Father, we thank you for this time that we get to continue in our worship, Father. So we sing those songs about the truth of who you are and about our gladness to see you. We're so thankful that you're a good God. Father, I pray for this message. Father, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease, that you would speak through me. Um, we love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So the message title is Reasons to Rejoice. Um, I was kind of thinking about this, going through the men's studies. We're going through um, 1 Samuel right now on Tuesday nights. And it's been amazing seeing, you know, Samuel to Saul to David, the interaction that they've been having. And I remember one of those nights in the Bible study, I was just looking at And I knew that I was going to be teaching and I was praying, like, God, help me figure out what you want me to speak about. And uh, no surprise, but I got it wrong the first time. I thought I was supposed to be in James, and then I uh, quickly switched over to Romans. I'm the Romans guy. I did Romans 8 last time, so this is, no surprise, my favorite book of the Bible. But as we were going through the life of David, just seeing the amount of struggle that he went through, and solely because there was a man named Saul who was a king at the time who God had taken the anointing from him and put it on David, and he was aware of this, and he understood it, and he was jealous of him and afraid that he would take his spot as king. And so what we see Saul did was he tried to kill him many times. I don't know how many of you have been attempted to be murdered by someone chucking a spear at you, but I assume that that's pretty scary. He was going through some trial at those times, but through it all, as we know, he wrote many of the Psalms and the amazing things that King David did, um, along with some failures. But we see that through it all, he would rejoice in who God was, even when his enemies were coming after him, even when he was down and low, even when he had committed some huge sins. It didn't matter. Well, it mattered, but he continued to rejoice in God. There was never a moment, well, I'm sure there was moments where he was down, but he always came back to it. 
God, defeat my enemies, uh, you know, make them fall down or whatever, curse them. But then at the end, he would say, but God, you're where I put my heart. You're where my treasure is at. And he would always come back to the reality of who God was. And so that was kind of the inspiration of the message. And as the week continued, I started thinking about Joseph and all those things. And that's how we got to the topic. So that was an intro to why. Now we're going to intro into the actual message. So sorry. Yeah, it's already coming out. All right. So right before Romans 5, Romans 4. Romans 4 comes after Romans 3. <laughs> Romans 3 talks about this relationship with the law and faith. And then it ends with, but should we just ignore the law? It's like, no, we must follow the law. Then Romans 4 continues to go down and it says, hey, but Abraham, the father of our faith, the original guy who God called out and really spoke to, he, he just believed in God. Like there wasn't anything that he had done that made God say, I want to justify you. He just believed in God. And he said it was counted to him as righteousness. And so we see this word counted so many different times. It means to put in one's account. That he actually wasn't that, but that's how God saw him. He was justified by his faith. He was justified by the belief that he had in God. And it's on the backdrop of this that we find ourselves in Romans 5. So Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. Oh, also, if you don't have a Bible, I believe we have people who can help and give you Bibles. Anybody need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We're going to be in that word a lot today, so. Nobody. Cool. One? We got one in the back. All right. All right. Romans 5, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, it's plain and simple, just what we had talked about earlier. Our faith is what justifies us. There's no work that I have done. There's no deed that I could do that could ever earn that right to be justified by God. It's our faith, just like it was for Abraham. God is consistent. It's the same God of the Old Testament. It's the same God in the New Testament. And what he's consistently been saying is that if you believe in me, you will be made righteous. Our faith has justified us. This word justification it's the act of God declaring men free from guilt and acceptable to him. We've been cleared of all charges, and now we are actually acceptable to God. And as we, as we already talked, that was the whole point of the last chapter. See, this, this belief, this is a one-time thing in a Christian's life. There's a moment where we receive who God is, where we, where we understand, we know what God's done for us. We understand who he is. We understand that he died. We understand that he rose again. We understand these things, and we say, you know what, God? I place my trust in you. I couldn't do it, 
but you did. My faith is in you. Jesus becomes the object of our faith. And at that moment, the Spirit enters into us. And so in Ephesians, we see this in Ephesians 1, verse 13. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then there's, there's another verse in John 5 that echoes the same idea. You see, Jesus describes this as passing from death into life. So we'll read the verse, John 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He did not come into, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Has passed from death to life. So you were dead. You were dead in your sin. You were dead in your trespasses. There was no way you were acceptable to God. There was no way that you could please him. And then you believe. And then you put your faith in Jesus. And then you accept him as your Lord and Savior. And there's this great change. It says the Holy Spirit enters into you. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And those who believe in him who sent Jesus has eternal life does not come into judgment, but pass from death into life. So we have peace through God. That's what it talks about in that first verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Going on to the next verse. Through him we have also obtained access by this faith into this grace in which we stand. See, this word grace, it basically means unmerited favor. There's no reason for God to accept us, but he does because he has grace on us. It was unearned favor that God has towards us. And we receive this grace by having faith in his son. But this is where this book changes everything. Because it says, by faith into this grace... So there's grace for that moment, that first moment when you first believe the Holy Spirit enters inside of you, you've passed from death to life, that moment, his grace. Then it says this, by faith into this grace in which we stand. His love and his sacrifices, his love and his sacrifice are to be stood in daily. This isn't one of those things where you believe in Christ and then afterwards, okay, now I got my initial juice, I got my head start, now I have to finish this race. God says, no, you stand in my grace. You can't get anywhere without me. You will never be good enough to reach me. That's why I died for you. You have to stand in this grace. This is a place where we stand at. We cannot move from this place. We have to continue to look to the cross. We cannot change our perspective. We cannot have our eyes anywhere else. We're to look to the cross. We have to stand there. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm, I'm good. I, I have his grace now. Now I just need to finish the job. I just need to do enough good. I need to not put enough sin in this basket. I need to put enough good coins in this basket. And eventually, hopefully, the good outweighs the bad, and I'll make it into heaven. God says, scrap that. 
we stand in grace. There is never a moment where I don't need his grace. I needed his grace when I first believed in him, and I still need his grace now. We do not need to continue to perform after we're saved because Christ has died for all of our sins. Not just up until a certain point and then, all right, now I gotta fix myself up, I gotta pick myself up by my bootstraps, I gotta finish this thing all by myself. That same grace that saves you is the same grace that keeps you. And we see this in Hebrews, Hebrews 7 verse 24, it says, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he, meaning Christ, did this once and for all when he offered himself up. So back in the Old Testament, the, the priest would go in and they would make sacrifices. Someone would sin, they realize their guilt, they bring a sacrifice. I sinned, I need a sacrifice. I sinned, I need a sacrifice. Over and over and over and over again. And same thing with the priest, the priest himself. He's like, listen, I sinned too, so I got to... I can't be going into God's presence unforgiven, so now i got to make a sacrifice. Now I can sacrifice for the other people. And every time this happened, it was a cycle over and over, death upon death upon death upon death upon death. So much bloodshed over our sins. See, Jesus changed this. Jesus, Jesus said, I am the perfect Lamb of God. I'm the perfect Lamb of God. You don't need to continue to offer over and over and over again. I'll do it once, and it is done. On that cross, he said, it is finished. No longer are we caught in this cycle. We are forgiven once and for all. And this grace that we stand in, it gives us a reason to hope for God's glory. Look at that second verse again with me. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That God never leaves us nor forsakes us. He puts his spirit in us to live with us forevermore. He has made us pass from death to life. Not only that, but he sacrificed once and for all. This is a reason to rejoice. This is the reason to rejoice. So as we see through these verses, our, our justification comes by our faith alone. And we add nothing to it. When we, believe that God's, when we believe God's spirit entered inside us, and we are now immediate recipients of God's grace. And this applies to our whole life. There is no more striving. There is no more needing to do stuff for our salvation. There's no more needing to keep up and and to continue in this little rat race where, I, oh, I sinned. Okay, now I got to do good. I sinned. Now I got to do good. Once and for all, Jesus offered himself up. This applies to our whole life. There are no longer any needs, any need to meet any obligations because it's his grace that we stand in. And so now we'll look at this next part. These next verses are a little rough. It's a little counterintuitive, but it's so beautiful the way that God works and the way that he encourages us through his word. And the way that he knows all of our needs and he knows how to fill them. 
And we'll look in another way that we can look at the salvation of Jesus and how it should affect our lives. And so now would you look at me at Romans 5, verses 3 to, 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See here in verse 3, Paul is telling us that we should rejoice in our sufferings. Not that we should just endure, not that we should just tuck our head in and wait for the storm to be over. It says we should rejoice in our suffering. But notice how he says we can do this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that. This is why we need to be in the word of God. This is why we can't just continue going through this life without reading his word, without reading his instruction, without reading the prophecy that he has for his life, without reading the promises that he has for us. In Psalm 119, it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word was in David's heart. And that helped him to do what he wanted to do. See, he had it stored up. I know it seems a little obvious, but we can't practice something. We can't be consistent in something that we don't know. Like if you don't know how to swing a golf, a golf, whatever, club, <laughs> right? I am one who, I'll go to Top Golf and I will miss the ball like three different times before the ball goes anywhere. I'm like, I'm an athlete, but golf is different. But you have to know how to swing the golf club. You have to know how to do it. And then once you have that knowledge, you can then lace your fingers the way they're supposed to be. I don't even know if they're actually supposed to be laced. So let me stop with the analogies. But how am I supposed to hold my hands the way that they're supposed to be held? How am I supposed to keep my eye on the ball? How am, I, how am I supposed to do that if no one tells me how to do this? If I don't know, I can't practice it. Yes, sometimes in our faith we do this, don't we? We'll go a period of time without praying. We'll go a period of time without reading our word. We'll go, to, go a period of time without fellowshipping with the other saints. And then we go, why is everything so hard in my life? Why am I not being encouraged? Why isn't God speaking to me? Why aren't things rolling my way? Well, maybe if we were in our words. Maybe if we sought God. Maybe if we sought fellowship, we would be in a position to hear God's word. How many of you have ever went to your bedroom to go get dinner? Like, oh, I'm in the kitchen. Cool, I want to get dinner. I'm going to go to my bedroom. That's where the food's at. Unless you have a secret stash somewhere, I don't think any of us have. And why don't we? Because that's not the place where you get food. I don't go to my bedroom to get food. And if I did, there'd probably be roaches and ants all over the place. 
And that's no good. But food has its place. We know, the, where, we know where that place is, and we go there to get it. Similarly, we have to know what God says if we expect to live God's ways. We have to go to other believers. We have to go to God in our time of prayer. We have to go to God and seek him in his word. Because if we don't, how are we going to know what God's actually trying to speak to us? Knowing, knowing. I don't mean to judge and condemn because, boy, I tell you, there was, shoot, there was two days I forgot to study for this, if I'm being honest with you. Came home, did my thing, cool, got in the shower, got my workout, went to coach, came home, was like, I am tired. Went to sleep, woke up, crap, I did not study for the message. We all can do it. Our lives are busy. I'm not saying it's not. But we have to seek God. We have to. Whether it's in the morning, whether it's at night, I don't care when you're most productive. But when you are most productive, spend some time with God. He knows how this life is to be lived. He knows what's best for us. And not only does he know what's best for us, he wants what's best for us. Not only that, we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. See, one thing that I notice is that it's hard to rejoice in the middle of a trial, in the middle of a struggle, when that's where our eyes are at. And so maybe, maybe this looks like an unbelieving spouse is, is making a ruckus in your house, and it's just they're always combating you in everything that you do, and you're trying to read your word, and they're just all loud demanding you to do stuff. And, or maybe it's your friends. Maybe they're tempting you to do the things that you used to do, the things that you died to, and now you're living a new life, and they're trying to pull you back in. Maybe they're mocking you for your faith. Oh, I can't believe you do that all. Oh, you just Christian thumper, you... Or maybe you're outcasted by your friend group. They no longer want to talk to you. They no longer invite you to things. They talk behind your back. They're making new inside jokes without you, making you no longer feel part of the group. Maybe you're labeled as hateful. You're a hateful Christian. You hate me because of your beliefs and all these different things. You don't like the way that I live my life, and you just always judge, and you're so judgmental. Maybe you lose a job because of your beliefs. Or maybe, maybe you revert back to an addiction that you had. Maybe you're, you go back to a habitual struggle that you had back in your old days and you, it's a moment of weakness and you feel a need and you just don't know how to, how to feel it so you go back to your old ways seeking comfort because that's all you know. Maybe you fall into sexual morality. You know you don't want to do this thing, but your, your bodily urges continues to just war in your mind, and your mind just, just can't handle it, and you fall into sexual sin. Maybe you lie at work in order to get ahead. Maybe you're backbiting people. Maybe you're mouthing off, and, you're, and you actually are being judgmental, the bad judgmental. 
See, I want you to take note. We went through a couple examples. And this is kind of outlined in, in 1 Peter 4. It talks about, talks about struggling for Christ's sake. And that seems to be that first kind of group that we went through. Friend groups don't like you, um, all, that, all that stuff. Then there's the other side where we fall back into sin. So with both of these, we struggle. Now, obviously, we don't want to be in the circle where we're struggling with the sin issue. Because we want to not sin. But let's not ignore the fact that this definitely happens in our lives. And I tell you what, I was almost tempted to go back to that thing too. I am regularly on Chloe for being late to places. And I told her I'd give her a heads up before I talked to her, so I'm going to just look at this side because she's over here. <laughs> but often, we'll be going somewhere, and I'm like, hey, babe, you ready? And I'll get that little face, and I'll just kind of act like I'm patient, but I'm really not, and I'm really kind of like screaming inside. <laughs> and today, you know what? I was, I, was, I was actually the one late. She got up. She was on time. She was booted, ready to go. She walking out the door, helping me out with stuff, and I'm sitting there trying to get my shoes on, cologne on, like anyone's gonna smell me from up here. <laughs> and uh, my friend actually, one of my friends dropped off my sermon notes because I had to, uh, my printer, I'm, I'm a little lazy and forgot to go get printed uh, ink. There we go, forgot to get ink. And so he printed his stuff out, and he put it under the table or whatnot, and Chloe goes down there, she goes to look for it. Uh, it's not there, I get a call, I'm like, are you? Are you calling me right now? Like, you know I'm trying to, hello? Yeah, the paper's not there. Oof. And I had, and she might have heard it in my voice, I definitely had an urge to be a little bit upset. And then I remembered what my sermon was about. <laughs> and then I remembered, I was like, oh, yeah, you're right, God, my fault. I started praying. was like, yeah, you know what, I need you right now because uh, your boy is finna, you know, so I had to use my inside voice and, breathe. You see, someone, someone might have stole my doggone note. Someone stole the word of God. Ain't that something? But clearly, God was trying to teach me something too. Because trust me, I ain't got it all together. And I know I look like I got it all together, but But obviously, we'd rather, we'd rather suffer for Christ's sake. But sometimes we suffer because of our own sins. If I would have mouthed off at Chloe, this would not have been a great morning. And I am so glad the Holy Spirit was like, shut up, Don Jay. I would have been suffering for my own sin. But praise God, he, he got to me because I would have been up here mad trying to give this message, and that would not have been good. So thank you, Jesus, for your providence. Anyways, okay. Well, see, whether, we, whether we're suffering for Christ's sake or whether we're suffering because of our own wrongdoing, this promise applies to each of those cases. Now, let me show you. Because in Romans 8, 28, and this is one of my, this is one of my favorite books. This is one of my favorite chapters. Romans 8, 28, I think we all probably know this or have heard it at some point. 
says, then we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You notice that that says some things. Doesn't say some things. That doesn't say only when you're suffering for Christ's sake. Doesn't see all things as long as it's for good reasons. It says all things. We also got to notice the second half of that. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's the difference. The difference is our perspective. The difference is our hope. The difference is at the end of the day, my sins are already paid for. Our God is a redeeming God. He's a redeemer. Those bad things that happen to us, those things that put us at a deficit, the things that we even put ourselves in the deficit, God redeems it. He says, I'm going to use that fail. I'm going to use that failure. I'm going to use that struggle. I'm going to use that old lifestyle. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to buy it back. You squandered it. You wasted it. I'm going to buy it back. I'm going to make that work together for your good. So we know that when we suffer, it produces endurance. That endurance produces character. That character produces hope. That's why we always got to be looking at Christ. Because Jesus really is the center of it all. As soon as he starts to move, our perspective starts to shift. And we have to keep our eyes on him. We have to. There is no other way to live this life because everything else will leave you empty. Everything else, those struggles are just struggles. They're just struggles. There's no aim. There's no ultimate knowing. See, that's the beautiful thing. And that's why it's a reason to rejoice, because we know what God has done for us. And we know that regardless of anything that I have done, it is paid for. I'm no longer trying to play between the bad. I'm no longer playing this little game. Good, bad, good. Okay, I had a really good day, so now I can have a bad day. I won't have to try as hard. Oh, I had a ton of bad days, so now I got to really stack it up. Now I got to pressure myself, and I got to... on Jesus it's all paid for it's all redeemed so obviously we don't go in trying to sin but what we do know is that God will redeem it that God will work it together for my good because that's who God is that's not just what God does oh God did this God did that no our God is a redeemer. That's who he is. And see, this is beautiful because um, this makes me think of Joseph. This makes me think of Joseph. Um, Joseph, Old Testament, pretty much he, one of the heroes of the faith. I mean, he, he, did a, he did amazing things. He's one of the reasons that the Jewish people were able to even multiply because they were in a safe 
for the most part, environment in Egypt whenever they remembered who Joseph was. But Joseph had 11 older brothers, or maybe 10. I should have studied that, my fault. Joseph had a lot of older brothers. Joseph, <laughs> Joseph made his brothers mad. That dude was the golden child. His parents pimped him out with a nice little coat. And they were so upset at him. They did not like this dude. This dude gets everything going his way. Everybody loves him. Mom's always babying him, making him food. And I never get Krispy Kreme, but he always get it. And they was upset at him. So they decided to kill him. And then Judah, Judah was like, yeah, let's not kill him. He tried to go save him later. Didn't end up happening. Anyways, he got sold into slavery, marched him down to Egypt. He gets into, um, he gets into a well-known house. I'm forgetting, Potiphar's house. Um, and eventually he keeps working his way up. He has his eyes on God. He's serving God through it all. And Potiphar goes, you know what? I'm going to make you captain of my whole house. So he becomes captain of the whole house. He's in charge of everything, doing his thing. And Joseph, much like me, looked good. No, I'm kidding. So, but Joseph, Joseph actually looked good. My wife can agree that I look good. Everybody else, you don't have to. I won't hold that against you. But Potiphar's wife was looking at Joseph was like, hey, little dude, um, you know, with all the insinuations. And Joseph ran away from him. He, he literally fleed sexual immorality. He ran, got his coat torn off. Well, not his, the other coat. Anyway, part of his tunic or whatever got torn off, and he was in a terrible situation. So Potiphar decides to put him in prison. But see, through it all, Joseph had a key to life. He was looking to God. He knew who God was. He was told who God was about how Abraham came out of his land and settled in a land that was promised to him and how, he, and how Abraham would have a child at 100 years old. Lord, have mercy. Promised child. Said he had descendants. He like, God, I'm like 85, 90. I ain't got no, like, so you know he does his own thing. And they hear about the stories, Abraham. Isaac, Jacob gets to Joseph. He knows who this God is, and he knows to make him the center. And so while he's in prison, he continues to look to that same God. And guess what happened? In prison, he got another promotion. Boom, right back on top. Back like I never left. Now he's on top. And eventually word gets out, hey, this dude can interpret dreams. And Pharaoh had a dream that troubled him. And get this, so Joseph, he has this cool talent, right? He can interpret dreams. Pharaoh gets in front of him, I heard you interpret dreams, bro. He says, well, God interprets dreams. I'm not the one who do it. God does it. His eyes were still on God. This was a man who sought to honor God in all of his ways. So eventually, guess what happened? He became second in command only to Pharaoh only. And not only that, but when his brothers came during that famine, right, that's what the dreams were about, and so they decided to save up a bunch, and when the famine came, they could distribute it amongst their people. Well, guess who came running back to him? His brothers. Yeah, I ain't helping you jokers. Nope, he did. Continue to keep his eyes on God. 
and was able to bring his family into Egypt and save his whole people. Joseph was sold into slavery, got promoted to the highest position, went to prison because his boss's wife was lying to him, lying to Potiphar, goes to prison, ranks up in prison, then becomes master over all of Egypt, except second to Pharaoh. At the end of Joseph's life, this is Genesis 50, he says this, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. See, his brothers were afraid. I want you to keep this in mind. His brothers were afraid because of what they did to him. They're like, hey, maybe they won't like take care of my kids as well. Maybe he's going to have a little bit of bias. But he says, nah, bro, nah, bros, it's good. Listen, because as for you, you meant evil against me. You wanted to harm me. You didn't like me. And y'all sold my butt into slavery. That's dirty. He says, but God meant it for guess what? Good. to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Who does this remind you of? It's all about the cross. See, the amazing thing about suffering is that we can have an eternal perspective because guess who else had to suffer? Our Lord and Savior. And not only did he, like Joseph, believe it or not, Joseph, Joseph sinned. He sinned before. So if he would have got judged, there was actually something to judge him with. Maybe he was a little arrogant at times. I'm sure he was, little punk. Maybe he was lying to his brothers and stuff like that. I don't know what, I'm not, jo Joseph is a great dude, so I'm not trying to actually slander him or nothing. But I'm just saying, dude, definitely, he's definitely sinned. And I know this for a fact because I'm always right. No, because the Bible says so. But Jesus had no wrong in his account. Yet he suffered. He suffered. Brutally beaten for no reason. Unrecognizable. Most brutal death you could die. Guess what this dude does? Much like Joseph, when he says, God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, God meant it for good. He gets up on that cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He knows what Satan meant for evil. He knows that God meant for it to be good. But that's why we have to have that eternal perspective. We now have the we now have the opportunity to look. We now have the privilege to look back at what Christ has done, to look at the suffering that our Savior went through, to look at the trials that our Savior went through and say, he suffered, he endured. And now look where he's at. He's on the throne. He's our king. He's Lord over all creation. Without that suffering, but the, 
But the amazing thing is he rose again. So now, mm, okay, let me not get started because I need to save that one. All right, got a little premature right there. Then the last thing I want us to notice about this, well, it says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we see the way that God has changed our lives, has made us a new creation, has changed our character, that produces hope. That lets me know on the other side of that suffering, I know what God is doing. I can see the good that God is intending for me. I can see the way that he's going to make in my life. I can see the new person that he wants to become. I can see the old things have passed away and that the new has come. I can see it. It gives us a reason to hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That Holy Spirit is the reason for that change. I submit to it. I change because he said so. It's a reason to hope. And so suffering for Christ's sake is an amazing thing for us. Not because we suffer, but because we know what comes out of it. At the end of this, I will become more like Christ. I will become more like him. More and more, I will identify with my Savior. And even if we are to suffer from our sin, that's still the case. Why? Because all things work together for our good. You see why we have to know what our word says? Because now I know. Now I can say, you know what, God? I went through that trial, and it was self-inflicted. But I know you will use that for my good. Why? Because you're a redemptive God. Because you said so. Because you promised it in your word. Because you've never failed before. You will never fail ever. And you won't fail in this situation. So now as we continue... Now look at another reason that we should rejoice and why we truly have hope. We already talked about some of these reasons, but we'll, we'll continue uh, to marinate on this idea. And so Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, it says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the amazing thing about our God is that he never leaves us on our own. He never leaves us out there just to, oh, do your own thing. No, he is a God who wants to walk right in step with us. He is a God who wants relationship with us. So much so that he sends his spirit inside of us. The most intimate thing that he could do. He's not a God who leaves us alone. And now as believers, we can freely walk in our lives knowing that there really is no condemnation. Judgment is no longer on the table for me. I can now walk in this freedom knowing what God has done for me. I'm no longer demanded to perform a certain amount of good. No longer demanded to do certain things to keep in step with the law in a 
for my righteousness since. But I'm able to know that God accepts me. Because guess what that verse said? It says Christ didn't die for the people who already had their act together. He didn't die for people who were already perfect. He didn't die for people who had no reason to die for. He didn't die for people who could make it to heaven all by themselves. It says he died for the ungodly. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners. I'm sorry, verse 6. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. And so what does this mean for us? Let's look at verse 7 and 8, and then we'll go through that. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is for everybody. This is for every single person, every single human being on this earth right now. Christ died for them. Now remove all the people. Now it's only you alone in your bedroom or wherever your happy place is or whatever, whatnot. Christ died for you. He died for you. This is for everybody. There are no requirements. See, every person in this room knows what it's like to sin. Every single person. But we have a God who's committed to us. He seeks our good at all times, even when it crushed him. Even when it hurt him. Even when it put him into a deficit. Jesus wouldn't have to die if there was no sin that needed forgiveness. In the garden, he asked God, is there any other way? If this cup could be taken from me, please let it be so. There was no other option. He took our place so that we would reach that perfect requirement. In other words, he took our place so that we could be justified, that no sin would be in our account, and that we would be made acceptable to God. See, that's what love is. So I think right now the culture has this word love confused. We think it's a passion. We think it's a feeling that we have for other people. We think this and that. We say we love cheeseburgers. What does that even mean? See, when God says he loves us, he means I am willing to do anything to benefit you, not himself, to benefit others. Whatever that looks like, I am in it for the benefit of others. See, the amazing thing about that is that when love actually works, when we see love actually working, this is what it looks like. This is back in verse 8. But God showed his love for us. He was seeking our good. He wanted to help us. He put himself in a deficit so that we would be benefit. 
But God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. When love works, it doesn't wait. He didn't wait on us to get our act together. God initiated it. He initiated it. This is his character. This is who our God is. Even way back in the garden, Adam and Eve sins. He comes out. Where are you guys? Where are you guys? I'm not waiting for you to make it right yourself. Where are you guys? They come out. They do their thing. Guess what he does? He takes a sacrifice. He kills an animal, and he covers up their nakedness. He covers up their shame. Because remember, they tried to cover it up themselves. They tried to work their own salvation. Oh, I need to be covered. Let me get some fig leaves all itchy and junk. God said, no, no, I have a better sacrifice for you. I have a better way to cover you. The plan was already in motion. That's who our God is. And that gives us confidence. That gives us a reason to rejoice. Because while we were still at odds with Christ, he blessed us. And this is why we have to continue to look to him and what he's done. Because now what does this mean in our lives? Well, I'll tell you what. Matthew 5, verse 44, it says this. But I say to you, love your enemies. Doesn't mean you have to look. Doesn't mean you have to enjoy the things that they do to you. Doesn't mean you have to like them for how they treat you. It doesn't mean you have to congratulate them and that they slandered your name. It means that you love them, that you seek the good of them. That's what I said. You love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. This is what our Savior did. This is what he's calling us to do. See, God doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't modeled for us already. God doesn't ask us to do anything that he won't empower us to do, that his spirit is working inside of us, yearning and convicting and encouraging us to continue doesn't leave us alone. He's an initiating God. God's changing our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit, who's a guarantee of the work that God is doing in us. And we have hope because we have a great high priest who would stand in between. He would stand in the gap between our sin and a righteous God. He made atonement for us with his own life. But not just for people who were good, not for people who were seeking him, not for people who were just so good and nice and who just loved him so much. Did it for sinners. Did it for sinners. We were enemies of God. We deserved his wrath. middle of your life but God 
So now we'll look. Now we'll continue to look through Romans, starting at verse 9. We see that we have hope because Christ died for our sins. But there's another amazing truth that's concurrent with the fact that he died for us. This is why we need to stand in that grace. So let's look at Romans uh, 5, verses 9 through 11. It says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now let's look at that first verse again. Verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, I want to cover this. I don't want to duck and dodge this. So let's talk about it. God is a holy God. He cannot... And he will not let sin go unpunished. That won't happen. God cannot ignore the wrongs that have been done. In order to be righteous and good, he actually has to. Because of his nature, he has to. It would be a contradiction if he said he was righteous, yet he let sin go unpunished. Now I'm going to prove it to you. Because as parents, we do this. I remember. <laughs> do I want to dig back into my dog on childhood? Okay, let's do it. All right. So there was one time when I was really young. Man, I was such a bad kid. So my cousins, we lived in the same house. There were so many fights, so many things going on in that house. It was there, my, like my, that family had five kids. We had three at the time. So eight kids in the house, most of us just chilling in the loft, all trying to play the video game at the same time. Yeah, that, that was tough. A bunch of little sinners. So there's a couple times where, you know, my girl cousins, I was younger, and it's it like, you know, you don't know much better. So, you know, we're kind of fighting and stuff, and I'm ripping remotes and this and that. My parents let me have it. Well, first, my parents weren't home, so my uncles let me have it. Then my parents let me have it. They had to punish the wrong. They had to let me know. Because they can't let me continue on going throughout life just thinking that it's okay to take things from people and all these things. So they had to punish me for it. You can't let that go unpunished. Otherwise, they'll think it's acceptable and okay. And someone was actually hurt in that. So it's just to punish someone for the wrong that they did because they have hurt somebody else. Another example. We do this in education system. At school, you cheat on a test, automatic zero. You cannot go through life taking other people's work and taking it as your own because it puts them in a deficit. You don't give them the credit that they deserve, so you get punished for it. get put on academic probation, maybe you get it incomplete in the class, maybe you just get an F in that test. We judge those who do things that's wrong. What about in business? Someone smuggling money, 
Someone's not showing up at the time that they should show up. Someone doesn't get their work done. Someone lies about completing something and they haven't. You might get fired. They might dock your pay. They're going to judge you because you have hurt somebody else. So there's a judgment. They cannot continue. They cannot just sit there and be like, oh, well, you took like $1,000 from us, so we're just going to like accept that. No. There's a judgment that comes from that. And it's right to do that thing because otherwise they just go throughout life, continue to do this. And as a nation, we do this. A lot of people want to go to extremes and go to murdering and stuff like that. Of course, that applies. But I can't just rob a store, get caught and think like, well, I mean, I really needed it. Like my family, like we couldn't eat. They don't just let that slide. You get put in jail, you might get something on your record or whatever, whatever happens. But they don't let it slide. And if that was your store, you wouldn't want it to let them slide. And maybe you would. Obviously, certain situations are tougher than others. I'm not saying we shouldn't have empathy. The point I'm trying to make is that wrong actually deserves punishment. And I think we all know this. Because if someone right now stole your phone for no doggone reason, you would be very upset and you'd want them to be punished. Someone hurt one of your children? Uh-oh. You might go kill them yourself. Right? Someone touch one of your daughters or something like that? Because it is wrong. And it deserves judgment. Yet when it comes to God, it seems a little bit extreme. Oh, God, why would you punish me? I only sinned like 40 times today. Now, obviously, that's not. But, but come on, like, you know, like, like, you know that you've done wrong before. Now, let's not sit here and act like we don't know. We know. We know that we're guilty. I know that I've maybe said one too many words to my wife. Probably should have stopped at a certain time and just continued going, just japping at the mouth. We know we've taken something from somebody because we wanted it. And we know that we wanted it, but we went and took it faster and, and it was just selfish. We know that we think about ourselves too much. And so whenever someone hurts us, we want to be defensive and start yelling and screaming. We know that we get angry at people when they start talking behind our backs and we just go talking about them and spreading rumors. We know that we do these things. And so God says that it's wrong. And God accordingly judges it. But see, here's the difference with what we do as people and what God does. God gives us a way out. In this world, you may not get a second chance. You may not get a redo. You may not get a oopsies, my bad, I won't do it again. Okay, everything's fine. See, we actually do wrong to people, yet we're actually really the more harsh ones. Because God, while he realized that we are sinners, he realizes that we do deserve his wrath, he realizes that we really do deserve this judgment, he says, you know what? I'm going to die for you because I need to be just. But he says, I am just and I'm the justifier. He justifies us. He's the one who holds the standard. But he's also the one who gives a way out. 
And then moving on to verses, whoops. Moving on to verses 10 through 11, it says, For if while we were enemies with God, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, Christ's death was for our sins. And him being raised to life was for our justification. Jesus' bodily resurrection is a must for the Christian faith. That it is absolutely necessary. Without the resurrection, we are dead in our sins. Why? Because that was God's stamp of approval. Any man can die. So Jesus has to become a man in order to die. But not any man is just raised up by his own power. God was saying, this truly is my son. Everything that he spoke, I'm saying, yes, I'm putting a stamp of approval. He is good. He is right. He is just. He is God. Because what he says about himself is true. And I just proved, I just proved it to you by his resurrection. Without Jesus being raised, we too are still dead in our sins. We're dead in our sins. Without Jesus raising from the grave. But our God is alive and we will live with him forevermore. Jesus didn't stay down in that grave, guys. He got up. He raised up. Our king is alive and well. He is seated on her throne. And he is coming back for us. Not only that, he sends his spirit into our lives. And so now that we see the way that he was raised from the dead, we now have confidence. We now have confidence to know that he will do the same thing for us. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave that now lives with us. That lives within us. And now gives me a hope to a new life. I have this flesh on right now. And at a certain point, it's just going to start getting beaten down. I'm going to get older. I'm going to get slower. My body's going to ache and all these things. But guess what? I have a hope. Guys, we have a hope. Because Jesus got up from that grave. He didn't remain dead. He also did it to let us know that we would have that very same life on the last day. He will not leave us or forsake us. Why? Because when he died, he came back. And much like when he ascended, he will come back. And he will reign. That's who our God is. And now we model after that same thing. Christ entered into my life, and he's entered into you guys' life. And I died to my sin. I crucified my flesh. I died with Christ on that cross. That old me, it's dead, it's gone, it's never to be seen again. I am now a new creation. I am justified. His spirit lives within me. I am accepted by God. I am righteous. I am a saint. I don't have to wait until I die to become a saint. I am a saint today because my God has pronounced it. I 
died to my sin and I came up a new creature. This is amazing because this is what baptism is representing. We go under that water, our dead, us is gone, and we come up a new creation. This is the same idea that 2 Corinthians verse 5 or chapter 5, verse 17 says, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Why? Because our God, our Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, is the only person to die and come back to life on his, with his own power. Because that's who our God is. And so we have a reason to rejoice. Our God didn't stay down. He rose up from that grave, showing us exactly what we would be doing, what we should be doing now, what we should be doing tomorrow, what we will do on the last day. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. I want you to die daily. You put that old man on that cross and you're going to come up a new creation. And when you die, your body's going to go down below beneath the ground, but you're going to be raised up a new creation. I'm making all things new, just like I've made myself new. And now we have that promise because God did it himself. I now can look forward to that day when God is going to raise me from the dead. We have a reason to rejoice. Jesus has made me new. He hasn't left me that old creature. He hasn't left me that old creation with those old habits, with that old sin addiction. He's made me new. He's given me the power to reject those things. He's given me the power to live in his freedom. He's given me the power to prophesy to other people. He's given me the power to walk in his spirit. Because he gave me his spirit. His wrath now passes over me. I'm no longer condemned with the world. He judges. He's a God of judgment. That's not going to change. But I tell you what can change. We can become a part of his body. We can believe in what he's done. We can believe in what he said about us, about the world, about his son. We can believe in him and we can be covered from that wrath because the blood of Jesus is over us just like it was on the doorposts of the doors back in Egypt the blood of the lamb the spotless lamb covered the doorposts and guess what the angel of death God's wrath God's judgment on the Egyptian nation it guess what it passed over them they're no longer destined for wrath and we no longer have to be either And that new life that I now experience with Christ, I know that that's a reality now. And I know that that's a reality to come. And guys, that is a reason to rejoice. So what do we learn today? Well, we went over four kind of reasons that we should be able to rejoice. You see, in verses 1 through 1 and 2, we see that there's no work required. 
Our faith is the way to our justification. Jesus is the object that we put our faith in. I no longer have to toil. I no longer have to do things. I no longer have to build up my case for good and throw coins in the basket and weigh it out. My faith is in Jesus. It's the object I put my faith in, and now I'm a recipient of his grace. And that's not just a one-time thing to be in his grace. That's a lifestyle that I stand in his grace. I know I will never measure up. But God, he's given me his grace, and now I have the ability to stand in it. So there's no work required. Verses 3 through 5, see that we get a free heart transplant. See, regardless of what it caused our suffering in Christ, whether it be ourselves or whether it be other people, um, for the sake of Christ, Christ's life gives us a new perspective on what suffering is, and it gives us a reason to rejoice because we know that Christ came out on the other side of it. Likewise, we will too. In those hard times, as we endure, knowing what will come out of it, we endure we get new character that becomes who we are. God works in our lives. He changes us from the inside out. And that character that he has now developed because of the endurance that we built up, because of the suffering that has been inflicted upon us, that gives us a reason to hope. Because we know his spirit is within us. We see that new creation that we've become. We see the old has passed away and we have become new. It's a reason to rejoice. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see God's great love. Christ did that work while we were still his enemies. And that was the whole purpose. There was no way to connect us to God unless Jesus came. He knew we couldn't pay, so he paid the price himself and he redeemed us. No credit check or anything. God didn't look to see if we would keep our word. He said... I will pay the price, period. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God. And then last but not least, the hope of a new life. Our last reason to rejoice. Verses 9 through 11, we saw that Christ was raised from the dead. That was God's way of authenticating who Christ was, that his message was correct, and that he really did what he said that he would do. And so there's no need for Google's two-step authentication the old has passed away and the new has come and we know this because God raised from the grave Jesus raised from that grave and the same God that raised Jesus from the grave is the same one who's making us a new creation who's making the earth a new creation and who's going to make us new to inhabit that new earth amen and so you got you know as for your comes up um, I'm going to pray um, but we it's our family Sunday so we're going to do communion and so um, in order to take communion here, you don't, have to, you don't have to be a part of our church. If you're visiting, feel free to take it. All, the, all that, well, the Bible requires is that you are a believer in Jesus. And so if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you don't have a faith in Christ right now, we can, we'll have some people up here ready to pray for you. Jeff over here and his wife Ann over here. If you want to pray with them or you can find maybe a believer right beside you if you're not comfortable coming up. But it's not a special prayer that we do. It's not something that we do. It's a belief. It's where it says we believe in God and we're counted righteous. 
if you've never believed, if you've never made that commitment to Jesus in your heart and you want to right now, I would encourage you to. It's the only way this life is to be lived. It's the only way you could be reconciled to a good God who wants a relationship with you. So I'm going to pray and ask Fiora continues to, um, continues in worship. The elements are up front. And just guys come down in a line. And at your own time, at your own pace, just pray over the, the um, you know, just do your thing as you pray and the saints are praying. And maybe you're deciding to receive Christ. And just come up and, and take the elements on your own. And so, Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your son. Father, I pray that in everything that we do, we will look to your cross, Father. That we would look to you who came down humbly. The God of all creation came down to put on flesh, Father, and you died for us. You lived the perfect life. God's wrath was never, you were never worthy of that wrath, yet you, you decided to die for us. You had never sinned, yet you decided to die for us, God, and we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your love. We thank you that we were still enemies, God. You died for us. You truly are the spotless lamb of God. And it's so fitting now that we could just get a chance to remember the suffering and the trial that you went through that bought us back our freedom. God, help us remember your body. Help us remember your blood. Help us remember your sacrifice. Us to rejoice in it, Father. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, his sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.